Welcome to the Boardroom's Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the BoardBench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardroom's Best. Today, we're pulling back the curtains just a bit on some of the things that we're doing here at the Boardroom's Best in our podcast. And with all new efforts, the road along the way is not always smooth. This road for this particular show was bumpy as all get outs. And we didn't know it until after the show was done and recorded and we went into editing. So I am giving you a bit of a heads up that the audio is a little wonky. We have done our best to try and clean it up. The important parts of what you'll hear are clean and vibrant and hopefully you will benefit. In fact, I know you'll benefit from what Tom, our guest, has to say here today. To move along, our guest today is General Tom Kolditz, an internationally recognized expert on crisis leadership and leadership in extreme context. He's currently serving as the director of the Dora Institute for New Leaders at Rice, where he actually formed and launched the group for the university. Prior to joining Rice, he built and served as the director of the Leadership Development Program at the Yale School of Management, also a first, and is a retired general where he led the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point for 12 years. While he was there, another first, he built the West Point Leadership Center. During the course of his career, Tom has also spent time in leadership and human resources as an analyst at the Pentagon. Tom serves on several corporate boards. And he is a good friend. It is my pleasure and privilege to bring to you General Tom Kolditz. Welcome to the boardroom's best, Tom. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for inviting me. Tom, you know, you and I have known each other for a a long period of time. And we first met, I think, it was really through Francis Hesselbein, probably one of the most trustworthy and decent people that I know out there in, uh, in corporate America today. I agree. She's a gem. She is a gem. She's always somebody who knows how to get right to the heart of an issue. But um, today, what I'd like to talk about, and you and I have discussed in, in a number of times in the past, is the whole issue of trust. And what does that mean from a corporate leadership perspective? And you are probably the most, I'll call it the uber leader in extreme trust in what's going on out there in the world today, both from your work over at the Door Leadership Institute and the work that you've done at, at West Point and Yale. So let's start by just really discussing what is extreme leadership and um, and how do you identify that? Well, you know, in, in 2001, I took over as chairman of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point. And our circumstances were such that we knew shortly after that, after 9-11, that most of our graduates were going to go to Iraq or Afghanistan and lead other people's children in dangerous circumstances. And so we wanted to learn as much as we could about leadership in dangerous places and how it was different. So I did a lot of research for really five years. Uh, We researched this topic. I wrote a book called In Extremist Leadership. And, you know, one of the things we found is that trust was really important to people who were leading or being led in dangerous places. And the transference of that to elite businesses in crisis is almost 100%. The principles and the way that it operates is almost exactly the same. So 
I, you know, I just became very interested in trust, and that's why I've, I've studied it as long as I have. So you're saying that trust and leadership in the line of fire out in the battlefield is pretty much right in line with trust and leadership in corporate America. Well, yeah, it is, and and here's why. And it's somewhat counterintuitive because you would think, you know, fearing for your life versus fearing for your livelihood, you know, would be vastly different. But what really drives the need for trust is uncertainty. So on the battlefield, you know, you have circumstances where you have an active thinking enemy. Um, you know, things happen that are unexpected and you don't have a lot of certainty. You have to ask people to do hard and dangerous things. And the only influence you have over them is trust. You can't show them a spreadsheet. You can't show them, you know, uh, financial analyses or something like that. They're going to be very straightforward. Now in business, under circumstances where there's a lot of certainty, everyone's making money, the market's very stable, everything's calm, you don't need much trust and you don't even need very good leadership. I mean, people will tolerate really abysmal leaders when everything's going right. But as soon as there's a crisis, what you have is this massive injection of uncertainty. And the leader can't just lay out a spreadsheet and say, here's what's going to happen in the next three months. And so the only reason that a person would would follow a leader or or uh, be influenced by that leader is if they trust them. And that trust will have to have been built over time. You know, there's no magic silver bullet. There's no switch you can flip where all of a sudden people trust you. You have to have money in the bank when it comes to trust. And um, what's really driving the whole thing is uncertainty, not danger or whether it's business or military or anything like that, it's how do you lead people under conditions of grave uncertainty? And that's something that the average, and I'll put in quotes, the average leader doesn't necessarily have or a new CEO that's being brought into an environment, especially one that may be unsettled. And now they're at the front of the lines. And you had mentioned earlier the, the term in extremis. And from what I understand, in extremis is a Latin term for the point of death. And you look at some of the companies that are going out, uh, some of the issues that are going out there in the news today, you know, Facebook issues, what's happened with Amazon's concern now. Actually, Amazon's really snowball effect as a result, or being questioned, shall we say, as a result of some of the scrutiny or lack thereof at Facebook and some other companies, including um, the rating agencies and whatnot. But training for that is really something that the the average leader doesn't have unless they're forced into the environment. So how do you actually train for, for being in a line of fire from your experience when you don't have that chance to, to sort of have being in the crosshair, shall we call it? Well, the first thing <clears throat> that I explain to people is that when when people begin to panic, when there's when there's uncertainty and crisis, the main quality that they're looking for in their leadership is competence. And the only way that you can really win people's perceptions of your competence is to make sure that you lead in a fashion where they they see you leading and doing your job. In other words, don't make every decision behind closed doors and email it out to people. You know, let people see you go through your decision-making processes. Let them see your rationale. Listen to them and then make a decision that they can see form. 
And what happens is they begin to recognize that you, you know, you're the, you're the CEO or you're the leader because you know your, your business, because you know, you know, what you need to know. Uh, and it can't be faked. But what the problem, the problem that most people run into in a crisis is that instead of becoming more open and available, and, and instead of reinforcing these perceptions of competence by including people in decisions, the crisis is when the closed door meetings happen. So, you know, you've got an attorney telling you, you know, don't tell anybody, don't mention anything about this. And all of a sudden, the whole organization just locks up. And so b- people begin to wonder, can I, can I trust this individual? And that's when they start looking at other things like elements of the individual's character. You know, what's been their habit in the past? What did the last firing look like in this organization? You know, was the person treated with dignity and respect? Or did security just walk them out of the building? So once the crisis happens and the uncertainty skyrockets, all of these bills come due. You know, all of these people begin to begin to have to make assessments of the leader in what could be a relatively closed door environment with an accounting of all the other things this leader has done through through the years. Are they going to throw me under the bus? Are they going to look out for my interests? And and so what I tell people is it's you know, you really do need to lead every day with the understanding that someday you're going to have a crisis. You know, nobody that leads for more than 15 or 20 years gets gets by without having a major professional crisis. And so, so you have to treat people in a way that will earn that respect and trust when you don't need it. You know, when things are going well, you don't need trust as much. You don't need those strong leader qualities. You can just be a manager and People will take their paychecks and go home and be happy. But when bad things start to happen, yeah. you know. That's when, that's when the real moral of uh, the moral fortitude of the individual shines through or lack thereof, correct? Exactly. You really do get to see what a person's like when they're under that kind of pressure. And, you know, we've all known leaders. <clears throat> you know, you mentioned Francis Hesselbein, and I've been around many, many terrific leaders in my career. And, you know, you you just know when the bad things start to happen that you're not going to be surprised by the response of that leader. They have a predictability about their character that you just know they're not going to flip-flop in some way or put blame on other people and and all of a sudden turn into self-serving individuals. And they're steadfast through the whole course of things. And transparency is so important. Um, you know, I, I heard in the, this particular conversation starting out is you know, the term transparency. And two things that um, are critical for any leader, not just CEOs, but boards. And quite often I see boards that flip-flop on understanding what they should do. And when there is a crisis or even an uncomfortable situation starting to brew, instead of going to themselves and their peers and saying, you know, we're here for a reason. We're here to guide and steer a company into the right direction and support that leadership, hopefully the right leadership that they put in place, to do the right thing for the right reason. And that impacts so many people. But the clarity issue is so critical frequently missed. I agree. I mean, you know, and and part of it is that, you know, there are sometimes consequences to transparency and clarity 
in a crisis, and I, you know, I always talk about, you know, lawyers telling people to not say anything and, and being in closed door meetings. And look, that's good legal advice, but it may not be good organizational leadership advice. And what leaders get paid to do is balance the two out. I'll never forget having a conversation at Duke with a member of the Duke University board uh, named Jack Bovender, who was the CEO of HCI, Hospital Corporations of America. And he was the CEO of HCI that ran and had to evacuate Tulane Hospital during Katrina. And the people in the hospital all did the right thing. I mean, they took care of patients. They, they got them evacuated. They created circumstances where they could move critically unstable patients. And, and the whole thing was a big success story. And I asked him uh, specifically about how he managed communication. And he said, you know, he he only had the occasional email. He couldn't talk by phone, and he couldn't he couldn't physically go there. And he said that he couldn't become in thirty minutes what he hadn't been in thirty years, which was a way of his saying, you know, we manage for this all the time. We we have our values, which put patients first, and everybody in the hospital knows that if they're doing something because it's for the benefit of patients, that it's the right thing, and they don't have to ask permission to do that. And I said, well, you know. You, you communicated in some ways that could have left you open for legal liability. And he said, I know. He said, you know, there were some emails and there were some things that I told my people to do that we didn't necessarily, uh, they, they gave us some legal exposure, he said. But he would rather deal with the lawsuits later than be guilty of doing the wrong thing in the middle of the crisis. And that was powerful to me that you know, you've got a leader who says, you know what, I, I knew it was it was not necessarily the most protective legal posture that we could have had, but that it was necessary to be in alignment with our values for us to be transparent and communicate. And, you know, that's a decision. That's a leader decision. And um, in his case, it, it, it was tremendous. And I, I think uh, people had a lot of respect for the hospital and a lot of respect for him, and they were very successful at the evacuation. Wow. That, I mean, that story just hit right at the core of just listening to it and and hearing that he was willing to make that judgment call because not just was it right for the patient, but it was a measure of, in this case, the man as the as a person, knowing what the differences between right and wrong. There was no gray area. And that that's just so important today. Um Predominantly because there is gray area that's being presented to us. And, and so many people are saying, well, you know, it's black. It's not really black and white. It's kind of gray. Well, you know, they did have they did have some gray area they had to deal with. For example, uh, in order to arm the convoys that had patients and had drugs, you know, large stores of drugs and right. things like that, um, as I recall, they had to liberate some weapons from <laughs> from sporting goods stores, and and you know, they had to do some things that perhaps would have been you know a borderline illegal, but they were all being done in good faith by people who were committed to defendable values. And so when the when the dust settled and the smoke cleared, you know, everyone could look themselves in the mirror and they could stand up to other people. And there were almost almost zero legal problems for that hospital. When they, you know, they did all kinds of things and of course not all patients survived, but um but there were very few legal problems for them because there was this sense of moral Righteousness and fortitude. Yeah, I mean, you you just there is no 
question of, uh, I think, of leaders when seen in a crisis like that, that really know how to rise above the fray and say, you know, here's the deal. We need to roll up our sleeves, get it done, and we'll take anything and everything that we possibly can muster in order to get done what's right. As opposed to said, you know, run behind the skirts of the lawyers, which is, oh, it's a weak point. It's not, that's not what leaders do necessarily. I do understand from a fiduciary perspective and what boards are, are being told to do, you can't disclose certain things. But maybe it's time to have a little bit more open dialogue on the, on the front. Well, you know, and, and one of the classics in crisis leadership case studies is the, uh, the old Tylenol poisoning case study, which comes up all the time in business schools. I mean, it just won't go away because it's such a a classic example of a company stepping up and accepting responsibility and doing something that they knew would protect their customers and the people who are taking those analgesics the most. And it arguably exposed them to a lot more legal liability by saying, you know, we need to take down all of our product. But at the same time, uh, it demonstrated the right kind of values in terms of taking care of people and making sure that, you know, people were uh, are not going to get poisoned. I mean, it would be easy enough for them to say, no, that was, you know, this is just an evil person. That's just a one-off. You know, they're doing that. We can't help that. You know, that's not what they did. And um, and they came out on top because of their commitment to, to their values. And they're still on top as far as their name and reputation goes in the industry, which is, which is, is, is a test of strength. But, um, you know, you, you talked a little bit about the conversation and transparency of leadership, and it brings to mind some experience that I had very early on in my career, uh, being part of a management development team and a training program. And I remember the, the folks from the top, two in particular, that came down from the, the CEO's office and gave the blessing to those of us that were in the, in the bowels of the company going through this training program. And to this day, I can hear this fellow's voice saying, we don't care what you think. You are to do what we tell you to do in this story. And you walked out the door and left. You're laughing, but that is exactly what happened. <laughs> now, we talked a little bit about trust and reputation and clarity, including consequences of decisions. But we haven't talked about what happens when trust is damaged. And and how does somebody repair that? If, in fact, it's even possible when a leader just destroys the, the confidence of people uh, from the top down, even with the board, but the board are still backing that CEO. Well, I think the first thing that you can do, and probably the most important thing, is to own up to it. And to do it without quibbling or, you know, without equivocating you know, what caused that breach of trust. If the action that caused the breach of trust was deliberate and deceptive, you just have to own up to it and just say that it was... Line, right? Just let Yeah, and just say it was wrong and and it was my fault and, you know, I, I accept responsibility for it. If you violated trust while at the same time taking care of people's interests in some way, Explain a little further. So, because that can go two. So that so yeah, the two the two things that the two things that really determine whether get whether people are going to trust a leader, particularly in crisis, is competence, which we've already talked about, and then secondly, this downward loyalty to the organization, where the people in the organization know that you're not going to be dismissive 
of the consequences of your decisions on them. And, you know, this was really borne out in some research that we did in Iraq during fighting in Mosul. So let me just add, your decisions are not going to impact, or the consequences are not going to impact the, the troops. So, so what, yeah, what I'm saying is that they know that you're making hard decisions that may be right and may be wrong, but that you have their best interest in mind. So making so, a mistake is okay. Making a mistake is fine. And making a mistake that, that even if it violates people's trust to some degree, you know, you did something and you didn't tell them about it, or, or even if you, if you bent the truth. But what they're going to examine is your loyalty to them and what was your, what was your, uh, what was your, your baseline intention for doing that. And if you maintain that loyalty with them, the, the forgiveness is, almost absolute and almost instantaneously. I mean, we saw military leaders who ordered people into combat where people died and mistakes were made and people died. And as long as as long as the rank and file perceived that the person wasn't dismissive or wasn't overly, you know, accepting additional risk at their expense, they they were fine with it. And and the leader would be the one who would be the most horrified at the outcome, and the soldiers would be like, you know, sir, we, you know, we know you were you were just fighting the fight, and uh, now that's but in but the case if of death of, of people dying, yes, in the in the case of people dying, because they because they they expect that to occur. It's not just the leader doesn't get the sole vote, and it's the same thing in, in, when when bad things happen in business. But as soon as people think that the leader is advantaging themselves. By throwing them under the bus, that is almost unrecoverable. I mean, the the only people that I've seen successful at recovering that have gone into a meeting and laid themselves bare and so said, fully exposed, open themselves, fully exposed. I have I, you know, wrong. This is horrible. I can't believe this happened, and I criticized <clears throat> Joe or Sally for no particular reason. You know, I it was a deficiency in my character. You know, we had faults. We we all have faults, and I I just exposed one of mine, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it never happens again. But if you try to if you try to undersell it, you know, equivocate about it, uh, you know, say say that it wasn't intentional when it was, or um, try to minimize the impact, you know, any of that, and it's unforgivable. People will not. They will never come around. But there's, you know, in our culture, apologies are powerful and acceptance of responsibility is powerful. And, uh, you know, one time I just gave a speech at the Air Force Academy on failure. And, and I had a, I, I walked them through four big leader failures. And at the end of the, after I'd let them vote on whether they'd fire the leader, I told them they were all my failures. And, uh, you told them before they made <laughs> Well, one of them was a was a, an inexcusable uh, mistake around nuclear surety. Uh, I had two people on a nuclear weapon assembly team that didn't have security clearances. Uh, yeah, big mistake, uh, reportable to the Pentagon. And you know, I told my boss, who eventually retired as a three star general, his name is Keith Dayton. I, I told him, I said, he asked me, you know, when did you find out about this? And I said, about three minutes ago. And he said, well, that's the right answer. I suppose beforehand when you hired them and brought them on, correct? Right. Uh, and then, and, and then I said, you know, sir, 
There's no excuse for this. It's all my fault. You took responsibility, even though it was somebody else's job and responsibility to make sure that they were approved the security plans, correct? Correct. Because here's the thing. When, when, you, when you make an attribution like that, the first thing that happens is that counter-arguments start popping into people's minds. So the first thing that popped into his mind was, well, no, it's not all his fault. He's got other people down there. We've got inspectors who should have caught this. you know. But if I'd have blamed it on the rank-and-file people that were that were on the ground there and said, oh, you know, that lieutenant, he just, you know, he wasn't doing his job. Then the counter argument that would have popped into his head is, well, what the hell am I hiring, paying him for? You know, when you start accepting responsibility for the things that you do, the only avenue that you give people is accepting your apology. It's so powerful. But so many people are egotistical and arrogant, and they just don't want to admit that they did something that was that bad or that disingenuous. And I I just think there's a lot of power in the admission of that and saying, I find myself here having to explain something that's inexplicable and inexcusable. And I don't, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever had that kind of, you know, you've ever failed yourselves in that way, but I just did. And I'll tell you, it doesn't feel good. And I have to, I have to come clean with you on it. And uh, that's powerful. <clears throat> you know, you can decide to do. I mean, personally, it's hard for an individual to come forward. I mean, we've all made mistakes in the course of lives. And I'm sure that coming forward to have that discussion didn't come lightly. I'm going to guess. You should never assume, but you probably thought about it overnight before you came clean and and discussed it. You know, how am I going to have this conversation where I'm going to save face of what happens if if I get fired, right? Well, you know, for me, over the years, it's gotten to be just about instantaneous. I mean, I don't even think about it anymore. If it's if it's my fault and if I violated somebody's trust, then, then I just throw it out there because I know that what's about to happen can't be any worse than, you know, trying to trying to resist it. But the first but, time, the first time it, you had to do it was probably not easy, correct? Right. And, but the way to be guided, the, the way that you learn to do this is you really have to focus on seeing the world through the eyes of somebody else. Absolutely. And that's hard. But if you see yourself through the eyes of these people that you're apologizing to, and, and you, you really do sense how you look to them, then it puts you in a position of being able to say, say the right thing. And then conversely, if all you're thinking about is yourself, you can't possibly see the world through their eyes, and you can't possibly say the right thing. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, with empathy and authenticity and being able to look at people and accept what your position is relative to them and accept the fact that they may despise you at that moment. And you you just have to accept that and, you know, acknowledge it. Acknowledge that what you did was despicable. And move forward. And move forward. That's exactly right. Um, But I I think most trust is recoverable. You do. That's interesting. So you look at the um, looking through the eyes of the other person, um, like you just said, and from a CEO, a public company board experience, or even a private company board experience of the CEO who needs to, and the board members, quite frankly, need to look through the eyes of the customer or the shareholder. So it's a little different than the battlefield, but it's a different kind of battlefield, if we'll you know, call it at that point. And if you don't understand the implications of what a decision or a crisis or a breach of trust happens has on those that are relying on you for their livelihood, to pay their mortgage, to keep a roof over their head, to feed their children, or to derive some sort of pleasure from the products and services that you deliver. 
then there's something missing. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's just part of being, kind of being in touch with the world. As leaders, we can't create our own reality. You know, we live in an actual reality that, that we share with other people. And too many leaders who are trying to find excuses for what they've done or trying to be overly self-protective create this alternative reality that is, is distanced from other people. And it causes all kinds of problems uh, in the organization. Um, and it can, it quite frankly, can it can impact other organizations that are similar to yours because now you've created an image in, in the environment that if one company is perceived as it's bad or doing the wrong thing. Exactly. Or wrong. And not necessarily true. So, Tom, you know, I'm, I'm going to wrap up here because we have a certain amount of time. But if you were to um, put a short synopsis or, you know, what are the three things that a good leader and a good board needs to think about when it comes to trust in the environment, in the business environment we're talking about today, in the boardrooms. What are sort of the three words well, I think uh, transparency is is essential. I think um, I think taking into account the perspectives of customers, shareholders, and employees is is essential, and they may not always be in alignment. Uh, and I think the recognition that trust is always earned, but that you can put money in the bank you can you know you can gauge the level of trust that people have in you long before the crisis hits and that you really do need to think of it in terms of you know you're either in pre-crisis mode or you're in crisis and the way that you need to lead in in both those settings is pretty much exactly the same prepare for the storm prepare for the battle and plan to to lead with integrity at all times. And, and I would probably add one more um, point to that is clarity. Being totally clear of what's going to happen, how you're going to say it, and understanding the vision of executing it morals and strength. Yeah, I mean, we, we've got a saying here in our organization that, you know, because it's a startup and there's a lot of ambiguity and so forth, but we have this saying that we run the show, the show does not run us. And, and that's the way a leader has to approach crisis and building trust. And perfection doesn't allow for opportunities for growth. As they all said, as you know, messy is a little good, or it can be good. It doesn't have to be perfect all the time. But the outcome and the values are um, unquestionable. And that's, that's what it is. Well, thank you, Tom. It really has been a pleasure. I know that there are lots of other issues that we can uh, talk about with regards to trust and leadership, and I hope that we can do that again in the near future. Thanks, Nancy. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders, RGP. Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.